0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Tech Spansive. I'm Sean Dubravac from Avrio Institute.
1: And I'm Ross Rubin at Radical Research.
0: Much of the news this week, of course, focused on the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, we've seen a lot of news around uh, how this impacts the, the tech industry. First and foremost, we, we certainly saw commodity prices skyrocket in some instances in advance of this. Uh, some of those are heavily sourced from that region from Russia and Ukraine you look at something like neon which is used in the production of semiconductors we we see uh, prices go up there and, and some concern around availability um, you saw but you saw commodity prices go up really a- across the board as companies began to price in some of the geopolitical uncertainty and and look at how it would impact their supply chains. And, and by, by and large, this, uh, conflict really feels to me to be one of the most, uh, tech centric conflicts that we've ever seen. You, Ukraine clearly one of the most connected countries that we've ever seen to have a major conflict on their, on their own, uh, uh shores and, and, uh, land and using and taking advantage of all of that, uh, connectivity to, to spread their message, very tech savvy country, uh, and and using that, uh, to their advantage. And in some ways pulled in a lot of, uh, of the tech companies to, uh, and forced them to make a stand in a number of, of ways.
1: Yeah, we've certainly seen uh, a lot of reaction from many of the companies in different sectors of the tech economy. Uh, Certainly on the social media side, Sean, as you mentioned, a lot of the social influencers and ordinary citizens, of course, who have been a big part of this story have taken to the various uh, services to Explain what's going on, show what's going on, show all the damage that's been occurring in the country, highlight some of the victories that uh, they have seen domestically against uh, the Russian forces, and uh, and also take advantage of what seems to be the most unified block against uh, misinformation that we have seen ever since the initial Cambridge Analytica scandals in terms of Twitter, Meta, YouTube, uh, TikTok, uh, all taking moves Apple in terms of uh, its App Store, all taking measures to remove the ability for Russian-owned state media to spread uh, its its side of the story uh, out, outside of Russia. Uh, you've also seen some of the major tech suppliers such as Microsoft and Intel, announcing that they would be cutting off uh, supplies to uh, Russia. And it's less clear what the impact of that is going to be. There was a story, for example, recently about Yandex, the giant Russian search engine, saying that even with such sanctions, it would be able to continue providing services for 12 to 18 months. Uh, We certainly hope that uh, this conflict is... Not uh, in, in the in, in the in the state that it's in uh, 18 months from now, uh, but uh, but in, in any case, uh, while Russia is, I believe the 11th largest uh, economy in the world, it really does not uh, represent a huge piece of the revenue pie for many of these companies. and so uh, they have been able to implement these restrictions without necessarily, uh, taking uh, a lot of the repercussions financially for doing so. One interesting wrinkle are these reports that the U.S. is pressuring Chinese companies to, uh, particularly ones that do business in the United States, to honor the sanctions that are being imposed by by us and, and by the Western European countries, uh, including SMIC, uh, the semiconductor fab company, which, uh, as we were saying before the show, probably won't have much impact given how China-centric its business is. But uh, another interesting one is Lenovo, which, of course, is still a major number one PC supplier globally uh, and very active in the U.S. market, uh, particularly in government sales selling to the Department of Defense. And uh, this would represent really the first time that I've seen that the U.S. expands its pressure on a Chinese-owned company in the tech infrastructure space beyond Huawei and ZTE, beyond telecom infrastructure, because while the government has long banned sales of handsets uh, from Huawei in the U.S., for example, it has been okay with other Chinese companies such as OnePlus, uh, TCL, Motorola, which is a division of, of uh, which is a division of, uh, of Lenovo, continuing to sell. And in fact, you know they're they're a very significant part of the U.S. market. Uh, so, so this is you know this could be interesting if it if it starts to spill over. Uh, and raises the spotlight on what other Chinese-owned tech companies, out of telecom, are doing with respect to different approaches uh, when it comes to the U.S. and its allies' perspective uh, on the on the invasion versus China's uh, perspective on the invasion.
0: It has been very easy, it it appears, for the most part, for the U.S.-based tech companies to restrict sales in Russia. And to your point, Ross, they're, they're, it's not a big market for them. Politico reporting that uh, Apple, Amazon Meta, and Google could all cut out all of their sales to Russia and, and only see a decline of 1% to 2% of their, uh, obviously, multi-billion dollar Revenue, So it's unlikely that, um, it, you know, that that was a hard um, decision for them to make financially. And in some cases, you, you saw Apple announced they would stop selling devices in, uh, you know, in Russia. Massive swings in the exchange rate meant that. Prices for iPhones actually dropped about forty or fifty percent in Russia because they were were priced in fixed terms. So Apple had to do something. They either had to raise the price in uh, in local terms or they had to just stop selling it. And at the same time, how you would actually have it paid for with the the, uh, the um, restrictions around Swift and some other things that that have been uh, in, implemented and might still be implemented. Um, make doing business there more difficult for US businesses and so it was easier to just to rest- restrict all commerce there much harder i think for the chinese companies because china has has been quite silent on their willingness to support any type of sanctions from the very beginning and uh, you know unsurprisingly we we presumed that they wouldn't uh, be imposing sanctions and so there will still probably be a lot of business that takes place between Russia and China. And it, and it could cause some of these companies to create separate divisions, or even separate companies to deal with uh, with Russia. And uh, that way they can separate out their US business and their, their US interests. You know, the other thing that I think we saw that, uh, you know, my two other observations from, from Thus far as it relates to tech is the, the significant uh, rise and focus on cryptocurrencies, both in funding Ukrainian interests. Uh, Ukraine themselves came out and, and asked for cryptocurrency donations and created easy ways of, of donating cryptocurrency to help fund their their fight there. And uh, there was some concern that Russians would turn to cryptocurrencies as, as they were locked out of other markets. So you saw cryptocurrencies rally pretty significantly in recent weeks. And to me, the other uh, you know, final observation that I thought was really interesting was how because this, this conflict has been playing out in the public domain, in those tech environments, on places like, uh, like Twitter you've really seen it create some instant experts people who had domain experts on say military equipment or supply chain management or uh, you know Soviet union politics like th- those individuals saw that expertise come into uh to play here and they were able to take some of the images coming out of ukraine and interpret them for the lay audience and and really develop some really strong some strong followings and really share a lot of that, that, uh, domain domain expertise. So that to me has been really interesting to see how Twitter has been able to surface these individuals who in the past would have been able to interpret a photo and share that, but only within their own circles. And now they're able to share that with hundreds of thousands of, of listeners and viewers who are seeing that information play out in real time on social networks, especially Twitter. So uh, it has redefined what global war looks like in the age of of a digitally connected world. Uh, Switching to something uh, a little lighter. And uh, closer to home. And closer to home. uh, Amazon, we saw several announcements from Amazon this week. Uh, First and foremost, that they are launching Luna to everyone. So Luna is their gaming platform with which was announced in the fall of 2020, but since then has been only available to a limited number of customers through an early access invite only uh, uh, program uh, today or or this week. Rather, they opened up Luna to everyone. And so that's a a big shift in uh, their ambitions to Provide a cloud-based gaming platform to the world, and we and we've had a lot of uh, really interesting gaming news in recent weeks, as we've seen a number of of publishers uh, be acquired.
1: Now, this is probably the first streaming game platform that comes from a company that has a significant presence in the TV add-on box segment. So. There's Xbox Game Pass, which of course could uh, take advantage of the Xboxes in people's living rooms, but those were already engaged with Microsoft's game ecosystem. Here's an example of a relative newcomer to the game, uh, streaming game ecosystem, and right away they can take advantage of the Fire TV sticks uh, that are very inexpensive. Uh, and can connect uh, easily to a television and get a controller, and you're pretty much in business with uh, with Luna. Uh, in contrast, uh, Google has kind of struggled to find a pathway to the television with uh, its Stadia service. And, uh, of course, we continue to hear what has been a long-evolving story about whether the future of that service lies in the Google branding or whether they will make it more of a, a white uh, box uh, kind, of, uh, uh, kind of service. The other uh, interesting element of it is that, uh, true to Amazon's Playbook, they are providing some free games available to Prime members. So if you're a Prime member, I think you can take advantage of four games available during the month of March. These are going to rotate around. uh, And uh, I think this is really an important marketing opportunity for the streaming game services, because particularly when you look at something like uh, NVIDIA's uh, GeForce Now, which has been a very popular service and they've offered a free tier, but for most of the games on that service, you have to go out and buy the physical game. I mean, you can buy it from digital, not I'm sorry, I shouldn't say physical game. You have to you have to own the title, so you can buy it from Steam. You can buy it from EA. You know there are there are a number of sources from which to to purchase the game. Uh, but for a AAA title, you're probably looking at sixty dollars to you know get in get into the game. Uh, whereas this really allows you to see how well it works for you. Uh, and I mean, GeForce now does have a free-to-play tier, but uh, this is really puts it right in front of the user. So uh, Amazon moving into uh, a new category, uh, and a contrast to what we have seen from them on the physical retail front this week, uh, Amazon deciding to close down some of its initial physical retail forays, uh, in particular, Amazon Books, uh, which was its first first broad retail foray, physical retail foray, and uh, Amazon's uh, four-star stores, which was kind of an eclectic mix of merchandise. Uh, I always thought that the four-star designation really didn't mean much because if you've spent much time on Amazon, you see that a great many things have four stars or, or more, so it really didn't act as uh, as much of a, a filter. But, but in any case, uh, these moves come as the company focuses more on uh, groceries, uh, in particular the competition with Walmart. Uh, and uh, also we saw that they have opened the first Whole Foods in Seattle that includes their Just Walk Out cashierless technology that they pioneered with the Amazon Go stores, which, uh, which seem to be safe, uh, at least now, in terms of the closing of the uh, smaller uh, square footage stores. So they're clearly going to be moving forward with this. Uh, maybe they implement it in Whole Foods mini-type stores. Uh, Sean, we were talking a little bit before the show about the role that Amazon Go could continue to play, uh, particularly as Amazon, for example, builds out its uh, its pharmacy story. Uh, but, uh, but in any case, a changing of the physical retail landscape for Amazon.
0: What we also see is Amazon's willingness to change their strategy and then to implement that very quickly. So they're uh, in all... Counts uh, closing about 68 stores across these different brands and it shows that they they tried something they experimented with it. They have determined that the, the cost of maintaining the store isn't driving sufficient revenue from the stores, but also arguably isn't driving enough revenue from the the platform and so they've decided to, to close these stores as you noted ross it could be that they will reallocate some of these goods towards whole foods or amazon fresh some of the the storefronts that they are, are working at on groceries and grocery stores do carry uh, a variety of non-perishable goods those will all be uh, inevitably amazon or or amazon merchandised you know goods Amazon chosen goods, so you you'll probably be able to buy a Kindle at at the uh, Amazon Fresh stores. They did experiment with uh, selling Echo devices at Whole Foods, so you can imagine that uh, they they will uh, look for those cross um, promotions and and driving users to the platform who come into the store, uh, like you like you noted with pharmacies. That becomes a really interesting model because Whole Foods doesn't have fixed pharmacies in them. And, and I thought that made Whole Foods a much more attractive grocery acquisition for Amazon because they had... Uh, been building out their ability to do f- pharmacy deliveries and, and pharmacy orders online, and and I think Amazon really thinks about these things in terms of supply chain. You go back to uh, Ukraine; Amazon was one of the the companies that really hasn't been, I would say, very outspoken about the the conflict. They did say that they were going to uh, lend their logistics expertise, so that that you know again highlights the the point of view that Amazon is often taking with these, these things. And, uh, when they think about like, how are you going to use your logistics? I could see them doing pharmacies from a central location, driving the deliveries out to the stores and you're doing pickup in the stores, but they don't actually have a pharmacist on hand. Uh, now that, that may or may not work. Often people want to talk to a pharmacist, ask questions of, of the pharmacist about certain medications so that that model may or may not work for amazon but it's something they could do maybe
1: they could bridge it a little bit with a a smart alexa agent
0: you know totally
1: hey alexa is there any side effects that i should be aware of with this drug or something
0: yeah and you could do it with a video uh you know telepresence type experience which i i could see uh, you know working so um again amazon willing to experiment and deciding those, when those experiments have run their course, they're not afraid to close down the experiment. And it's one of the benefits that Amazon has in that a significant piece of their revenue is coming now from AWS, so it can fuel these experiments and in, in other places. And Wall Street has always given Amazon a very long runway for these type of experiments. And they have, uh, again, shown their commitment to close down the experiments when they don't seem to to drive the results that they, they want
1: although they they do seem to close down things more infrequently than, say, Google or Meta does. Uh, For example, Meta, this week, an announcement that they're going to be shuttering campus, which was their attempt to bring themselves back to their Facebook roots, uh, Facebook for for college uh, campuses, uh, as you will. I guess you could say that, Amazon Books was also kind of revisiting its, uh, its, its earliest days as, as a bookseller. But a uh, good point on the perishables, The not only is the market opportunity much larger for perishables than it is for books or some of the things that were sold in the four-star stores, but it's also just much more complementary to what people are buying online, to what was offered in those stores. And uh, to your point about AWS and the difference that that has made to Amazon, you could also note that when Amazon began rolling out these uh, these smaller form factor uh, stores, there was a lot of focus on expanding distribution, getting closer to the customer. Even though uh, Whole Foods, there aren't as many Whole Foods as there are, say, seven11s or Kohl's or you know some of the other companies in the uh, amazon orbit the a- amazon is that that's not as important uh for amazon as i as i think it once was they're pursuing other ways to close that that distribution gap uh, and that last mile strategy they have a lot of them now you know there's there's lockers, there's return, the return agreements through the UPS store and Kohl's. There's, of course, the things that they're working on in terms of uh, delivery by robot and their electrified fleets and Amazon Flex. So getting short, shortening the distance between uh, their, their warehouses, their distribution centers, and the consumer Really isn't as uh, much of a challenge as as it may have been in
0: 2015
1: uh, when it first rolled out Amazon Books.
0: Well, and I think what's interesting is some of what they're hoping for was serendipitous d- discovery and and you know serendipitous purchases where you walk into a store to buy a gift card for someone or a, or a you know a quick gift for somebody when you don't have time to order it and have it delivered and you pick up something else or you see something else that you might want and you order it. And uh, arguably it was tough to run a brick and mortar store during a pandemic when people aren't necessarily going into the store and the the, uh, traffic around their online presence was growing. At at the same time, you have seen them make a commitment in the last couple of weeks to open up their new fashion store. They're uh, opening the first one up in LA where they'll have curated outfits that you can see on the, on the show floor, and then you essentially scan a uh, QR code. Your sizes end up in the, the dressing room. You can try them on, you could have them, probably you could order them directly from there and, and have them shipped uh, to, your, you know, to your home. So you are seeing them continue to experiment with brick and mortar uh, re- retail locations. Now they're just going in a slightly different direction.
1: But, but another very good example of a category that is more complementary to what they're doing online versus redundant.
0: Yep. Yeah, great point. Uh, in the final Amazon story, we saw that they moved to force the FTC to make a decision on the MGM deal. That MGM deal has been uh, lingering for a little while. And uh, again, this just speaks to the great competition that exists for streaming services We're seeing that uh, play out in lots of different spaces as companies try to build up a a, a robust and uh, ultimately competitive free library of content that they can have access to and share with their users. Um, This shift has been playing out for a while. Obviously, Disney Plus pulling in all of their content, bringing it home and off the streaming platforms has been uh, Somewhat disruptive for for some of these uh, you know these platforms, and um, uh, so Amazon really pushing the FTC to make a, a final decision so that they can move forward on that deal.
1: And Disney Plus showing no signs of slowing down in terms of their user acquisition efforts. They have announced that they're going to be adding an ad supported tier, which will presumably lower the price of the subscription. And that will bring Disney Plus in line with Hulu, its other property, which has long had a ad supported tier and also most likely allow Disney to offer its triple play combo of Disney Plus, Hulu, ESPN Plus, which they have been pushing very aggressively uh, for, for a lower price and potentially lockout competition.
0: Do you think that we see them take this ad-supported idea to some of their other platforms like ESPN? You, yeah, you I think it would make ESPN. a lot of sense for ESPN, sure. Yeah, that could be very interesting. It also changes the business model of Disney+, Plus, where th- they will become a much larger broker of, of advertising segments, um, not a, a space that they've necessarily played in a lot so they'll you know, be a more active... You know, participant there, but uh, I, I really like what Disney Plus has done with their franchises, as they've built out breakoff shows and and um, different things in the Disney Plus, and really gained a lot of traction there.
1: But I, I think it also raises the question of, you know, certainly on Hulu today, the ad supported tier is by far the most popular tier. So as a lot of these Disney Plus renewals come up, will a lot of these folks migrate to the ad-supported tier, and I would not be surprised at all if if they did, Um, even though one of the the differences between the two services is that Hulu is primarily uh, television content and Disney Plus is primarily movie-based content, where the ads might be a bit more annoying, but uh, certainly tolerable and something that I think a lot of consumers will be happy to... Take on in exchange for a, a lower subscription price.
0: Yeah, well, and ac- actually, what I think Disney Plus has really done a lot of lately is build out beyond just the movies. But to your point, Ross, uh, if you're subscribing to Disney Plus for the movies, then you might not be willing to switch to that ad-supported uh, platform. You may want to pay to not have uh, commercials interrupt your your movie, as opposed to if you were streaming a. a you know, a series of episodes back to back. You wouldn't mind advertisements interspersed in that. So it will be interesting to see how that, that breaks out. It, clearly Disney has done some uh, some user engagement on this to try to figure out how people will will use the platform and who will switch. And this week we also saw a lot of other content deals uh, and announcements. Netflix announced that they were going to acquire Finnish mobile game developer Net Games for $72 million. They specialize in uh, entertainment franchises such as Stranger Things. Netflix clearly has game ambitions, and they also have a, a number of franchises that they want to take advantage of there. So bringing that in-house, uh, which follows a a long series of acquisitions that we've seen brought in-house, Microsoft acquiring Activision, Blizzard, uh, Sony you know, making acquisitions as well. So there, there seems to be uh, a, a run on game studios, and I, I could see why Netflix would go out and just bring it in-house for fear that it gets acquired by someone else, and then they have to go out and find a different provider for their entertainment franchises. The, instead just locking up that resource so that they can ensure they can continue to deliver games for their for their underlying franchises. And then we also saw Epic Games acquiring Bandcamp. Uh, the announcement, at least for now, was that Bandcamp will continue to operate as a standalone marketplace and music community. I think it's a very interesting intersection for Epic, which has made a big splash in doing virtual concerts in the Fortnite environment. And we've seen how uh, valuable that has been for some of those artists and and some of those artists seeing big spikes in their Spotify downloads and streaming after performing in Fortnite. Bandcamp has paid nearly a billion dollars to artists and and labels. So they're a, a platform that helps these artists monetize their content. Uh, This could arguably be a little bit of a metaverse play where as we start to think about more concerts taking place in the metaverse or in the digital space, then uh, we'll be looking for opportunities to monetize that content and uh, it could be a a good synergy there. Obviously, Epic has done some some experimenting there and more to come for sure. Not not just
1: in Fortnite, but we also have to remember that uh, Epic Games is the developer of Unreal Engine. And so they work with a lot of other developers and are very keen to service creative communities. And so uh, this could be a source for talent, a way to find creative uh, development talent and match it with creative uh, music talent. And also, I would say, I, I don't think we can overlook the idea that this is just uh, another way, particularly, Sean, as you mentioned, the payouts uh, that uh, Bandcamp has offered to musicians. What, what other company can we think of that's uh, paid out a lot to musicians uh, o- over the past decade or so? Certainly, Bandcamp, uh, not on the scale of iTunes or Apple Music or anything like that, but uh, another another piece uh, of, of the puzzle in terms of the the company's uh, move away from dependence on Apple and potentially greater uh, competition with Apple and uh, speaking of Apple, um, invitations have gone out for Apple's next major product launch event a lot of things being anticipated there from a new, Low-cost iPhone to new iPad Airs, perhaps a new MacBook design, uh, and uh, a very intriguing high-end creative Mac uh, based on the traditionally low-end Mac Mini design. So we're going to hold off and talking too much about uh, those announcements until they actually happen. But want to thank you as always for joining us. I'm Ross Rubin. You can find me on Twitter at
0: Ross Rubin. And I'm Sean Dubrevac. You can find me on Twitter at Sean Dubrovac.